Good morning once again. For those of you that were not here earlier, my name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here at the church. Today we are in the second Sunday of Advent, and Advent uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it just simply means coming. And during the Advent season, we remember that Jesus came, but more importantly and more poignant for us, we are looking forward to the day when Jesus comes again. We live right now in this place of tension between what he came to inaugurate, to start, the finished work on the cross, to when he returns again, when he is going to finally make every wrong right, when he is going to wipe every tear away. But for now, we live in this in-between place. Theologians have a term called realized eschatology. Eschatology simply means the end times. We live right now in a time when many things that are going to be have already started. So it's this idea that we were saved, we are being saved, but we will be saved. There is still salvation to be had. I don't know about you, but for me, I don't know how to say thank you without being mindful or wondering or thinking about those who have nothing to say thank you for. How do you receive gifts during the Christmas season, for example? At the same time, knowing that in the midst of your blessing, in the midst of the love that you're experiencing, there are those all around us who are not. How do you reconcile that in your mind and hearts? And what do you do with that reality? I wanted to share about this tension last week um, called Justice and the Gospel, and hopefully uh, we'll get to it in January. But today, I want us to think about this idea of suffering and the gospel. What do you do with the reality of suffering? Today, we heard from Joseph and the team about tragedy and life on the other side of the equator. It's difficult, but we don't have to traverse very far to experience that. Uh, I'm a little bit dressed up more than usual today uh, because uh, there's a memorial service for the Grau this uh, afternoon at 2.30. Rick Grau died a couple of weeks ago, and Linda and Tom and his brother, Tommy, they're grieving. They've been grieving. What do you do with that reality? How do you reconcile that in your Christian faith? We have a blood drive that's coming up. People are in need of blood. We have uh, Judy's aunt who passed, and Jim and Judy will be going down to Portland uh, today, I believe. What do you do with that reality? Our iPad dropped and it cracked, and the screen shattered this week. What do you do with that reality? There is a lot of suffering in this world, and 
Christmas is a great time for me to remember that in the midst of giving and exchanging and receiving, there are those who are suffering. And this is an important topic for me as a Christian because I have come to see, uh, and I think to, uh, to really the detriment of the movement, that Christians do not know how to do suffering very well. And in the text that was read for us, we see an example of people who believe in God, who are beginning to put their trust in Christ, just struggling and dancing around this reality of suffering. Here is Martha. As soon as she meets him, you know, Martha is the uh, goody two-shoes, the one who keeps herself busy uh, all the time. And she's just here blaming Jesus. Uh, there's a, there's a, there must be a word that means blaming and complaining and regretting and uh, uh, just shouting and unhappy at, all at the same time. And this is what Martha is doing. Lord, if you had been here. And Jesus just absorbs that. Right? But there she is pouring her heart out to him. And then there's these rituals. People are sort of in group as part of the uh, tradition, mourning. Their job was to mourn with Mary. And so they're sort of just uh, aware of her and following her around everywhere. God knows if that's helpful. And then we have theology that's incomplete and filled with questions and doubt. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's this dance around suffering. And I, as a Christian, relate to these people. They don't know what to do with the reality of suffering, how to reconcile it with the reality of their faith in God. And I want to suggest to you today that you and I, we really don't know how to do suffering well. That it is difficult for us that our faith often doesn't seem to work well in the midst of suffering. But I want to say to you that suffering is the greatest opportunity for God in our lives. That this period, this tension that we live in, this is God's most uh, greatest opportunity to minister to us, to reveal himself as God, as Savior, as lover of our souls, And so suffering is not something that's wasted. But in the economy of God, there is what we'll talk about next week, something called redemption. That somehow we experience the goodness of God, not in spite of our suffering, but through our suffering. The call to Christian faith is the call through the valley of the shadow of death. Not around it, not over it, not the other way, but through it. Christ came in large part in order to suffer. That when he came to love us, his love looked like suffering. And Jesus came to show us how to suffer well. And for me as a preacher, to preach Christ is to preach Christ crucified. I preach a suffering Savior. Someone who bled. Someone who was tortured. Someone who was abandoned. 
Someone whom Isaiah tells us you could not even look upon because of the suffering on his body. This is our Lord and Savior. And so suffering serves as the point of contact between me and God. And I want to suggest to you today that if you want to do your faith well, that if your faith in God is going to be contagious, something that's palatable and attractive to those around you, it is going to be because you know how to do suffering well. That you don't make light of suffering, that you don't dance around suffering, you don't try to solve suffering, but you know how to enter in and suffer well. Nicholas Walterstoff, he's a, a, prof, a philosophy professor at Yale uh, Divinity School. He's a Christian, and he lost a grown son in a mountain climbing accident, a sudden tragedy and loss. And he wrote a little book, which is the publication of his journal entries as he was going through his grieving process. The book reads as extremely raw and honest, and here's a quote from this book. To the why of suffering, we get no firm answer. Of course, some suffering is easily seen to be the result of our sin. War, assault, poverty, a misplenty, the hurtful word. And maybe some of it is chastisement, but not all. The meaning of the remainder is not told us. It eludes us. Our net meaning is too small. There is more to our suffering than our guilt. It is not possible to explain away all of the suffering in our world. There aren't enough human beings to blame. We live in a broken world, and the sum net meaning of suffering is not told us. We don't know why we suffer. So how do we suffer well as a Christian? How do we suffer well as a church? I have found that in my experience with churches, that most churches have a culture around suffering. There's sort of a set of normal expectations and reactions that the church is supposed to have in the midst of suffering. I would like us to be a church that does suffering well. Here is a Wikipedia definition of the word crisis. Okay? It's, uh, the Greek word is krisis, and uh, its adjectival form is the word critical, and it means this. A crisis is any event that is or expected to lead to an unstable and dangerous situation affecting an individual, a group, a community, or a whole society. Crises are deemed to be negative changes in the security, economic, political, societal, or environmental affairs, especially when they occur abruptly, with little or no warning. More loosely, it is a term meaning a testing time or an emergency event. A University of Chicago study 
uh, from their group, the National Opinion Research Center, in April 2012, concluded after months and months of research that belief in God grows as mortality nears. It seems you could get funding for anything these days, doesn't it? (laughs) Who didn't know that? In the midst of crisis, who are we as a church? How are we to be and feel and do as Christians? It is a great ministry opportunity for you who suffer and for those who suffer all around us. And as a minister of the gospel, I think part of my job is to help you to know how to do suffering well. Because my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And there's no greater ministry opportunity than when we are suffering. I'll have you know also that if you ever come to me for prayer, some of you who have done so have experienced this already, in the midst of your suffering, cancer, when you might be dying, I will ask you to pray for me. Because when we are suffering, sometimes we pray the, the best prayers. If I can rate prayers, I would say, those who are suffering pray the best prayers. And so I always ask those who are suffering to pray for me. First, acknowledge suffering. Suffering is everywhere. It is all around us. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. Our life is a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our life. It seems that there is no such thing as clear-cut, pure joy but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness. Joy and sadness are as close to each other as the splendid color leaves of a New England fall to the soberness of the barren trees. When you touch the hand of a returning friend, you already know that he will have to leave you again. When you are moved by the quiet vastness of a sun-covered ocean, you miss the friend who cannot see the same. Joy and sadness are born at the same time, both arising from such deep places in your heart that you cannot find words to capture your complex emotions. There is no such thing as clear-cut, pure joy that when you find yourself in the midst of suffering, you are not just experiencing a brand new feeling, but you are being provoked. There is a reservoir of sadness and suffering already in you that is beginning to flow, not for the first time, but again. Suffering is not only everywhere, but it is also real. And we don't have to always be strong. To be a Christian does not mean that we are strong. We see here in Jesus the shortest 
Bible verse in the whole Bible, right here, verse 35, Jesus wept. What do you think was behind the the mind and heart and feeling of this man, Jesus, who he, he was about, just about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it wasn't uh, uh, something he was shooting from the hip on. He had planned, even before he had started walking, he was planning to raise Jesus from the dead. The chapter before we read it tells us that he told his disciples, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Let's go. And here Jesus is, weeping. Why the tears? He had the power, not just to defeat death later, but to temporarily humiliate death right now. Why the tears? And then certainly if Jesus can cry, you and I are free to cry. Certainly our faith does not preclude our tears. When is the last time you allowed your faith to take you to deep places of grief, loss, and sadness? I heard a story once about these four Buddhist monks. They believe in reincarnation. And these four monks lost their master. He died, he passed away to cancer. And three of these monks were weeping bitterly. And then one of the monks, who was unable to go to this place, came to the monks and said, how can you be crying? Why are you weeping knowing that our master is uh, in a higher life form right now? And the three monks looked at each other, and then they looked at him, and one of them replied, because we're sad. Do you allow yourself to feel sad? Do you allow yourself to feel angry? To be angry at the reality and the fact of death? Suffering is evil. Romans 8, which we'll talk about next week, tells us that In all things, God works for the good. It does not say all things are good. Many, many things that happen to you and to your loved ones and in this world are evil. It's of the evil one. It's satanic. Do you know that death is satanic? Just because something good happens does not mean that it started as good. It means that God is good and he's able to work good out of everything. It's speaking to the power and love and economy of God, but not to the absence of evil. Yes, lots of good things come out of evil, but do not ever credit the evil for the good. Only God alone is good. Did you know that? 
just because I make a decision and some good thing comes out of that decision does not serve as proof that I made the right decision in the first place. If God can work good out of the cross, which is the greatest injustice in the world, then he can work good out of anything. It does not vindicate us. It merely points to a God who is powerful and able and committed to working good. There is a lot of evil in this world. Darkness is in our midst, with us, and at times within us. And so Jesus weeps in anger, in sadness. If you want to comfort those who are suffering, do not minimize their pain. Don't tell them you understand. Surely you don't. But simply sit on their mourning bench and ask with them, why do you allow us to suffer? I ask God, why do you allow suffering? And if God could give us words to explain, he would. But words cannot explain. And so he sends his son not just to Lazarus, but to us. And his son, instead of giving us trite answers and explanations, what does he do? He dies. He suffers with us. For God so loved the world that he gave to us a suffering son. Nicholas Walterstoff again. He's questioning God here. How is faith to endure, O oh God. When you allow all this scraping and tearing on us, you have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. You have not abandoned us. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear. But instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. There is also isolation in suffering. Uh, some of you know already that I was a literature major, uh, uh, majoring in Shakespeare, and so I'm definitely uh, making my uh, uh, living on that. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, was a book called Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And my favorite line in that book uh, reads as follows. We live as we dream alone. I've thought about this sentence over and over and over again this week that I sleep right next to the one who loves me, my wife. Skin-on-skin skin contact, and yet she cannot enter my dreams. And try as I might in the morning, I cannot explain my dreams to her. I can't even explain it to myself. They say men sail together, but each sailor drowns alone. 
What is that experience of dreaming like? What is that experience of drowning like? There is an isolation, isn't there? A sense of loneliness that nobody else can enter in. A sense that maybe we are alone. And I think we suffer as we dream, alone. That it is difficult for anybody else to understand my suffering. That try as I might, I cannot explain to you why I am hurting. And even if I were to perfectly articulate it, still, the years that these words fall on would fail to fully comprehend the meaning of these words. For these words are merely symbol. Not my experience of suffering. Verse 32, I think, captures this most vividly. If you had been here. Do you understand this is the base question when it comes to suffering? God, where are you? Where have you been? Where were you? Why were you not here when I was suffering? When my child was dying, when my mother was ill, where were you? There is built into suffering isolation. Not only isolation, but I think everyone's suffering is unique. Here in verse 31, we have the custom of people whose jobs it was to mourn. They had to cry on a dime. If they saw Mary weeping, they had to start weeping. If Mary was praying, they were to pray. They were supposed to mimic Mary's grief patterns. And yet Mary is still alone. You get a sense that they're still catching up to Mary. Mary's going from here to there. And they're wondering, oh, where is Mary? Oh, there she is. Let's go. They're not with her. They're at best trailing behind her. But look what Psalm 139 says. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my every thought when far away. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines bright as day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. You know what's the beautiful truth about this passage? God says here, through the psalmist, that he is always with us, even in our dreams. That I dream 
and live and suffer alone, but yet God is in my dreams. Scriptures tell us that he is the giver of dreams. And if God is with us, where is he? Where is God? And so I am left still searching for meaning in suffering. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15 says, Truly you are a God who hides himself. Where is God in the midst of your suffering? I read a lot of C.S. Lewis this week. I read two essays, one called Meditation in a Tool Shed and another essay called Transposition. And I want to tell a story that I read in these essays. C.S. Lewis, he talks about being in a tool shed in his backyard. And as he walked into this tool shed, the uh, door snapped shut behind him, creating this plume of dust. And he was... Uh, he found himself in pitch darkness, startled by the snapping of the door. But there was this one beam of light that was coming in through the top of the door. There was a gap between the, in the threshold of the door. And there was this beam of light coming in. And in this beam of light, he was looking at this beam of light, there was this, what he calls the chaotic dance of dust. Right? And you can imagine what this looks like. And he is walking closer and closer to this beam of light which has captured millions and billions of dust particles doing their dance. And as he got closer, he's looking at the dust and all he can see is dust. Chaos. Meaninglessness, he calls it. But then he started to shift his angle. And he started to tilt his shed so that he's no longer looking just at the beam, but he begins to look along the beam such that the beam is not shining in front of him, but it is shining right into his eyes. And as soon as he captured that angle, he was no longer able to see the dust or the chaos or the dance of meaninglessness, but he was blinded by the sun itself that through the crack above the door, through the green trees, he saw the blinding sun itself. And C.S. Lewis goes on to explain, and he says this. He says, when we are in the midst of suffering and with our feet planted on this planet, all we are doing is looking at the beam. What we see is the chaotic dance of meaninglessness. Suffering does not make sense when we're looking at the beam. But he says, tilt your head. And look not at suffering, but along suffering. And you will no longer see suffering, but you will begin to see God himself. The ultimate meaning 
in suffering. And this is verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. That Jesus says, until the final day, you will not have meaning in suffering. Not final meaning. Not total understanding. Not everything will make sense until Jesus comes back. The resurrection that Lazarus experienced here, it was amazing. A dead man raised back from the dead. And yet, Lazarus died again. That is to say, he suffered again. And we don't know how he died his second death. Maybe it was a heart attack. Maybe it was cancer. Maybe it was an accident. But Lazarus, for certain, died again. And the resurrection that he experienced is not the end-all, be-all answering to suffering, but it is pointing to the final day when he will stand before Jesus one more time. I want to end with a story. Um, I've mentioned earlier uh, the story of my pursuit with Susie. And um, I don't know how to say this except to just come out and tell you that I will never, ever get over this story. And you will continue to hear it for years to come, I imagine. And part of why that's the case, uh, you're going to find out right now, Uh, I pursued her for four years, and it wasn't four years as an adult where I had good boundaries and I was managing my emotions and my schedule and I had a job. It was four years as a teenager that I pursued her. I was pining every second of every day for four years. If you are an adult in this room and you like someone or you love someone, multiply that by a million. And that's what a teenager goes through in a minute. (laughs) Okay, so here I am pining, pursuing in all foolishness but zeal this woman for four years. And for four years, I experienced rejection. After rejection, after rejection, after rejection. I drew a picture of myself. There was a thought bubble over my head, and in that thought bubble was a picture of Susie. And then next to this picture, there was sort of a wall, a break. You know, she's in her environment. I'm in my environment. And she, there is Susie, and she has a thought bubble over her head. And in that thought bubble was a jar of peanut butter. <laughs> that was my existence. My thinking about Susie, knowing that she was thinking about nothing. <laughs> peanut butter. Certainly not me. And so there is all of this woundedness and sense of pain and rejection that I carried. And you would think by now, after 15 plus years of marriage and four children and eight homes bought and sold, we would be fine. But still to this day, when we go on a walk and Susie 
sneaks her hand behind mine and grabs it, my heart still skips a beat because I'm shocked that she's touching me. It's a true story. Just yesterday she did this, and I felt my heartbeat skip again. I'm shocked when she initiates anything with me. Why does this woman love me? Several years into our marriage, and this will give you a clue into just how strong-willed Susie can be. Several years into our marriage, uh, Susie was a school teacher, and she had uh, uh, received as a gift a gift certificate for tea at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. Now, tea isn't at the Ritz-Carlton, just isn't tea, uh, but it is sandwiches and breads and jams and all. You know, it's, it's fancy things served on silver. And so here we are all dressed up, sitting down for a, a date at the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, I'm just, you know, happy as a bug. And uh, she, out of her purse, takes out a little package gift wrapped. I thought, oh, there's no occasion. What is this for? She said, oh, it's for you. And she hands it to me, and she says, open it. And so I take this little thing, and I tear it open, and inside is a little journal book. And I thought, oh, you want me to keep a journal? She said, no. These are letters that I've written to you. I said, when did you write letters? She said, read it. And I open this letter, and it's from college. She's been writing in it since college, letters to me. And I thought at that moment, now you got to remember, she didn't just hand this to me when we got engaged and we started dating after college, but she handed it to me years into our marriage. She was still writing in this book, and I had no idea. Who has the will and discipline to do that? And I started reading this book right in front of her, having tea at the Ritz-Carlton. And she was sharing feelings that she had the whole time I was pursuing her. And I had not a single clue. And as I started reading this book, I was tearing up. And all these years of rejection and pain that I had thought were all gone were still in there. And it started dissolving and melting. This reservoir of sadness had been tapped into and was being healed for the first time in years. That, to me, is a little clue into what it's going to be like for me to stand before Jesus on the final day. The book of Revelation talks about this little book called the book of life. That we are going to stand before our maker, before the lover of our souls, before the one who shed his blood for us. And he's going to open this book. And until he opens that book and reads from it to us, our suffering will remain unresolved. But he will wipe every tear away. You understand that now we see things imperfectly as in a poor mirror, but then we will see everything 
with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me now. Until that final day, until he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. We are called to be those who suffer well, who will not minimize suffering, who will not live in denial of suffering, but holding a faith that allows us to even better, more deeply enter into suffering, the suffering of this world. Jesus came that he might suffer well. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, for now we live in these bodies. And in these bodies we are inhibited and limited and crippled and paralyzed. Our bodies are weak and it's fragile and it's disintegrating even as I pray. And our brains, they limit reality. They're just a funnel that's barely able to grab one corner of the reality of this beautiful world that you have created. So for now, God, we suffer and we're in pain. And with creation, we groan and we moan for the final day when we will be caught up in your resurrection. But until that final day, Jesus, you have given us your Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. And the Spirit allows us to die well, to suffer well. And so even in the midst of celebrations and this uh, season of festivity, we do not forget those around us who are suffering. And for us, living in this tension of waiting for you to come again means we suffer. God, be with us and help us to be with those around us who are in pain. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.